Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Lori. And we're the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. Hello, and welcome to another Tuesday morning with the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. I, Lori, am here today with Reverend Brendan Curran, who is a returning guest on our show. Rachel is unable to be with us today, but we are sending her bundles of love and are really looking forward to having her back next week. So how are you doing, Brendan? Great. So happy to be back today, Lori. I know. It's so wonderful to have you here. How have you been since you've been last on the show? Oh, you know, uh, languishing a bit as we all are in the pandemic, but walking in the direction of flourishing. How about you? That sounds so beautiful. I have been doing well as well. We've had some cool episodes, which I know you've heard. So it's been, it's been fun. Well, today, Brendan and I are going to be talking about LGBTQ communities in the progressive church. We have certainly talked about the effects of homophobia within conservative churches and how that affects the experiences of LGBTQ Christians but and LGBTQ people in general. But we wanted to also talk about the, um, the issues, the experiences of the LGBTQ church. As those of you who have listened to us before, you know that Brendan is the head pastor at Forest Grove Church, a UCC church in Oregon. Yes, it's Oregon. And sorry, I thought for a second I was wrong and it was Washington State and I was, <gasps> I know I'm so terrible, um, in Oregon. And he is also a member of the LGBTQ community and has been very active in justice work throughout his life. And I am just so excited to have him here as a wonderful confidant and beautiful friend of mine as well. So Brendan, when we talk about the issue of the LGBTQ community within the progressive church, what comes to mind for you? What comes up for you in terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, Laurie, first, and I, I can't speak for all LGBTQ Christians, but I can speak from my own uh, perspective uh, on course. that. And the first thing that comes to mind is that, you know, for anyone, queer or not, uh, if, if your faith and spirituality isn't making you more compassionate, more open-minded, more wise, if you're... Um, if your if your if your church if your house of worship isn't supporting a faith and spirituality that uh, expands your mind, um, it, it opens your heart more. Um, if it if it closes your heart and closes your mind instead of expanding and opening them, you should leave, and you'll be better off leaving. And so uh, the first thing that um, and if and if if your if your institutional house of worship isn't you know centering the um, liberation and dismantling of oppression that are the actions of Christ at the heart of the gospel, uh, then they're they're fake. They're fake. They're fake churches. That you should you should leave. You should go somewhere else. And 
I guess the problem facing LGBTQ Christians and all Christians in general is that that accounts for a lot of institutional church buildings. But the good news is that uh, the church is the body, not the building. And uh, there are many expressions within the body and the body is sacred and, uh, and throbbing with pleasure and liberation and joy and new life and always will be. Um, but uh, so I think the problem uh, for LGBTQ Christians continues to be the institutional church, even some of them that call themselves progressive and very often the progressive church means, uh, you know, enclaves of people who feel that, um, who have come to the conclusion that, um, you know, the message of love and liberation at the heart of the gospel are the Democratic Party. And it's a little bit more than that. I hate to break, you know, hearts and, you know, have people clutching their pearls over that. But, you know, I think that the, liber the, the liberation, the liberation, excuse me, uh, still having my coffee this morning. <laughs> the liberation at the heart of the gospel, I think, runs deeper. And so uh, I think that um, even, even churches who are progressive, like what that means is it stops at the point of being like, wow, we realized that queer people are human and we're not requiring them to debate and um, negotiate their full humanity in our space. So we have arrived. And yet we still uh, live in an empire. We still live under a racialized capitalist caste system that oppresses. We still uh, participate in systems that are you know, destroying creation, breaking down ecosystems. Um, the liberation message at the heart of the gospel speaks to all of those, the liberation of all of those bodies and points to the truth that we are one interdependent, interconnected uh, body uh, with each other, with creation. Um, you know, we are that unity and diversity. Uh, and so um, we have to get to that. We have to get to that uh, place of solidarity rather than, you know, tolerance and acceptance, not only in the LGBTQ issue, but I think, you know, all the different uh, intersecting forms of oppression that we uh, have uh, tangled ourselves into as a humanity. <laughs> yeah. And so what does that have to do? So, so I go to a church hypothetical me. I go to a church and we are accepting of LGBTQ folk. We, uh, we have our rainbow flag up. What does all those other things have to do? Like I, yes, of course, racial equality. Yes, of course, the environment. And I'm a liberal. I support those things. So what are you talking about? Of course, what does this have to do with LGBTQ issues? How is what? How are those other issues related to that? And we have our rainbow flag outside of our church. So what more are we supposed to do? Well, let's talk about the history of the rainbow flag for a moment. 
I mean, the rainbow flag, I mean, a lot in the queer community, as I observe, don't even really know the history of the rainbow flag. The rainbow flag was supposed to represent diversity. Um, unfortunately, there's a history of people, I think, uh, uh, white gay people in the gay community uh, in the early days of the gay rights movement uh, went some, not all, but some went in the direction of you know, assimilationist goals and um, sort of threw uh, their trans women of color sisters under the bus, like Sylvia Rivera. So, you know, the ra waving rainbow, you know, there was even, of course, uh, divisions in the Gay Liberation Front, for instance, which was one of the early gay rights organizations between uh, the cis white gay men and the uh, cis white lesbian women and actually I don't even know if they identify as cis because I think that the modern discourse around gender has blown open all of our uh, identities a bit um, and um, in positive ways really uh, um, exciting and positive ways I think we're back to the rainbow flag though um, so the rainbow flag meant diversity, but even within the queer community, we haven't necessarily been always so good at um, practicing solidarity um, with the members of the community who are in need of the, the most care at any given point or the most solidarity, uh, or just solidarity. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you measure solidarity, you just practice it. But um, uh, the yellow in the flag represented the color of the star that the Jews had to wear in the Nazi death camps. The orange, I believe, uh, were gypsies. Red uh, were communists and political dissidents and socialists. Uh, purple uh, were lesbians. Blue were the disabled. Uh, I don't remember, unfortunately, all the colors, but it was a reference to how fascism uh, which is basically the political expression of, I would say fascism is the political uh, expression of uh, patriarchy, uh, you know, basically taking capitalist patriarchal rule and making the, the rule of business uh, corporations, uh, which resemble, which are hierarchical patriarchal institutions, making that the, the, the order of the day and, and making it one with the military, um, you know, it's the, it's the most congealed and extreme expression of patriarchy. Um, so the colors in the diversity flag were the colors of, um, all those, uh, people, the many different people oppressed and murdered by fascism coming together as, as, as one and showing that when when all the many different people, the many different identities come together, we are indeed a beautiful rainbow. Um, you know, now, and the flag has sort of expanded in meeting. Now we, you know, uh, that that is the, the history. You know, now you will see um, the black and brown stripe on the flag to include, to, you know, uh, solidarity with black and brown people. The trans colors are in the flag uh, to sort of uh, acknowledge so a need for solidarity uh, with trans, the trans members of the community. 
Um, but the fact that we need to keep adding colors to the flag kind of shows that there's a need to practice uh, solidarity. And can you remind me, I, I got off on the uh, tangent with the flag and it did have something to do with the initial question, but I need a reminder. Yes, I mean, I think you're going in the direction of answering it and it's that like, if I have, if I go to my church, we, we support LGBTQ rights, we have our rainbow flag, like, I get what you're talking about, about diversity and inclusion, but, like, what does that have to do with being affirming to LGBTQ people? Oh, uh, right. And I was saying, I think the flag is aspirational. I think the flag is better than nothing because it's, it's at least saying, um, you know, because, I mean, I've rolled through churches who's in the United Church of Christ, uh, which is a denomination that aspires to um, uh, be inclusive towards LGBTQ uh, people. Um, open and affirming means um, basically we don't we don't say we you know include uh, LGBTQ people into the full life and ministry of the church in spite of what the, the gospel tells us, but because of the message of the gospel, which is, you know, to see the image of God in all persons, a message of solidarity with the oppressed, uh, particularly marginalized people, uh, uniting uh, as one body uh, across and in and through difference, um, because we see, we find these messages at the heart of the gospel, that is why we uh, include LGBTQ people into the full life and ministry of the church. I think that at this point, um, a lot of people towards the institutional church have the healthy attitude, sort of saying like, well, why would we want to be included in you? <laughs> I mean, you brought colonization, white supremacy to this continent, you brought uh, you know, it, there's an arrogance of the institutional church. And if the, if the institutional church wants to actually be the church, which is uh, the enfleshed presence of radical love uh, and liberation in the world, and that's bigger than the institution or the boxes we put ourselves in, uh, if we actually want to be a community of that body, rather uh, than we have to, you know, uh, allow our institutions to be spaces, be schools for love and places where we can nurture and be and become communities of resistance. Um, and oftentimes, even in the, those churches that say that they're open and affirming within the UCC, they trip over whether or not to put a rainbow flag out. I'm telling on the church a little bit. A lot of times open and affirming means we're a place where the family and friends of gay people can come and not necessarily a place where uh, uh, LGBTQ people can come and feel like they can fully be themselves and breathe. Um, but that's not all spaces, and I do think it's changing and growing. I think it started out as that, and um, there have been gains, and a lot of people worked really hard for the open and affirming movement within the church. Uh, and um, I'm really, I'm, I'm an ordained pastor because of the struggle and efforts that they made. But I think we have to honor and remember that the open and affirming movement within the church is one that existed in resistance to um, 
a church that uh, does not live into its own message of dismantling oppression, and it will continue to exist in tension uh, against that uh, legacy of, of, of patriarchy, which really has little to do with the message of Jesus. So what I'm hearing you say, and, and tell me if what I'm saying is incorrect, that it's not enough to just say, hey, you can come into our church and sit here and worship with us. It's not enough to say you can get married here in our church. It's not enough to put a rainbow flag outside because what we really need to be doing is to be looking at the deeper truth of what radical love is. Yeah. And that means leaving behind the patriarchal, white supremacist, and capitalistic roots within the Protestant church. The and the Catholic church as well. The institutional church has an image of God problem. Oftentimes, if you walk into an institutional church, uh, the image that the that that group of people has of God reflects the image of who you see in that space. And so suddenly when, when that is changed, it shakes up the understanding of the image of God, which shakes up, you know, and calls into question everything that we're doing. <laughs> and I think about that, that image of God problem, and I think about the issue that as a woman I run into within progressive spaces is that even if I am to assimilate or understand and accept this image of God that fits into the 2,000-year patriarchal narrative of who God is, um, or even if I'm with progressives who don't want to accept that narrative, we find it very hard to break away from the ways that that patriarchal narrative and heteronormative narrative is sewed within our theology. Um, how do we do that? How do we break from patriarchal tradition without still, while still also honoring tradition? I forget who said it. I think it was Bell Hooks um, who said uh, the opposite of uh, patriarchy is not matriarchy, but egalitarianism. And... Um, I think it's about uh, creating, bringing embodiment into the ways that we gather, bringing more dance, more art, more ritual, more color, more opportunities for sharing our story, uh, more, more opportunities for engaging the Bible as a sacred text that points to wisdom, but the wisdom is alive in us, in all of us, and moving. Um, you know, in the UCC, I think this is what uh, the, the term God is still speaking tries to summarize. Um, but I think that is a way that we do that. And, you know, um, uh, I think that something I'm happy seeing in the United, uh, something that is happening that, um, I'm happy to see in the United Church of Christ here in my central Pacific uh, conference, there's going to be a, a gender justice workshop for churches to participate in. And I know that the intention of that workshop is for people to actually sort of move beyond these performative expressions of uh, uh, welcome to actually uh, how do we, learning how to practice uh, 
solidarity and walk alongside people whose experience is different from your own. And I think that that's what the, the gospel calls us to do, not only just with LGBTQ people, but I mean, as like a predominantly, um, as a predominantly white church, for instance, uh, I'm moved, the gospel challenges me to ask the question, what does it me, mean for me to show up for, for racial justice? What, how do I practice good solidarity as a, a white queer person uh, or as a, a queer person with access to whiteness? I mean, really, I, I have, that's another ball of wax. Uh, whiteness is a social construct. I'm Irish, French, Canadian, uh, you know, and those are, those are my ethnicities. And, but, you know, uh, I also have access to white male privilege within the racialized, no matter how socially constructed it is, this racialized caste system that we're living under has been constructed. Um, and so the gospel requires me to uh, explore, um, explore what it means to uh, show up uh, for uh, racial justice and also the, I think as a queer person, uh, for for uh, trans women of color in the community who are, I think, disproportionately impacted by uh, anti-queer violence. And also, I just want to say, if people enjoy what I have to say today, uh, I encourage you to donate $5 to the Trans Women of Color Collective. Yes, please do that. It's making me think also about what, it's that we can't, we can't just stop here. We can't just stop here at okay, so we have a black trans woman pastor, we have our rainbow flag, we hung up our Black Lives Matter flag, we are, we are doing all the necessary things in the sense of appearing progressive, but if everyone in the congregation is white and we're still creating a space that is centered on the white straight experience and then also male dominant experience, then we end up really struggling. If that pastor doesn't feel safe preaching liberation theology from the pulpit or critiquing capitalism from the pulpit or right. pushing against certain structures within the congregation, then the congregation has a long way to go. Right. Um, yeah, that is, that is what I'm saying. I think that oftentimes um, even churches that are, even churches that have like put the rainbow flag out there, they've not necessarily um, done the work of connecting, seeing how um, that's not just a box or an aspect of ministry. They're not doing that. Um, they're not putting a rainbow flag out there. They're putting a rainbow because they're Democrat. <laughs> they're putting a rainbow flag out there because the God of the Gospels calls us to uh, solidarity with the oppressed uh, and also um, calls us to see the image of the divine in all persons. And what we are learning and what what is true is that gender and sexuality um, in terms of their expressions, there is a multiverse of expressions, not a universe of expressions. So the image of uh, God appears also in a multiverse of ways, 
uh, and expressions, and it is not one or two kinds of expressions. Um, and so, uh, you know, faith ideally is a celebration of life that calls us to revel and see that and reflect that in our communities, not like silo ourselves and separate ourselves. And, you know, the church has a lot to account for. I mean, uh, in, at the Forest Grove United Church of Christ, we're delving into uh, Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas's work, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. And she talks, she really um, in great detail for the first hundred pages, uh, articulates how uh, the founding of the institutional church in this country by uh, the Puritans um, and, you know, the Congregationalists, they were, uh, they conflated a myth of Anglo-Saxon superiority with this idea of being a community of bringing the light of Christ to the world. I have no problem with the light of Christ, but when um, when the light of Christ is conflated and made into the the whiteness of Christ, and the light is white, or the light is called and associated with that which is white, then and only and only whiteness, then that is a problem. That is uh, that is a false gospel, and that impacts and has impacted. Um, the the way uh, church churches and church communities have formed throughout this uh, continent. And I don't just want to pick on the Protest the Protestants because you know I mean uh, we can look further back to how uh, Catholicism uh, really um, gave birth to white supremacy with the Crusades. I mean, basically, the Crusades began with an effort to get um, the Moors and Jewish people out of Europe. So that which was uh, that which was European and white was good, uh, according to the ideology of the Crusades, and that's that which was black or non-Christian. Uh, or African and non-Christian was like bad and evil and needing to be expelled. And so I think that was because uh, that was kind of the beginning, I think, of how um, Christianity stopped being, uh, I think it had probably already happened because of empire, but uh, rather than being a community of love and resistance of bringing this radical love to the world, uh, it, you know, further carried out the mission of empire, which ironically Christ comes to overturn empire uh, with the realm of heaven. And so I want to bring it back to what you were saying is uh, churches, ideally, little institutional churches should be ideally, uh, embassies of this realm of heaven that uh, Jesus talks about where the first is last and the last is first you know where we where we uh, dance for joy for the radical love that is the source of the universe before the Big Bang that lives in our hearts that has the capacity to transform the world and it's what 
you know, it's what Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. calls the beloved community, um, which I think is a great vision for what church communities could be, which is a global vision in which all could build, uh, people can share in the wealth of the earth. Uh, in the beloved community, according to the King Center's definition, uh, poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of sisterhood and brotherhood and uh you know i i would to so i think that uh ideally uh or i or i just want to say the to answer the question what can churches do what if our churches focused on being and becoming that we wouldn't be solipsistic enclaves united around like decaying moldy dogmas. Uh, <laughs> we would we would be a circle facing outward, trying to uh, come into healed whole relationship with the systems of life around us, uh, and we would be communities participating and coming into relationship with the individuals and communities around us who are in the work of restoring life. And, um, and part of that is, of course, celebrating and reveling in the beauty that of sexual and gender diversity, uh, that our, uh, that our queer family bring to us. For those who you who are listening who have heard us talk about Kelly Brown Douglas's book before, I want to highlight it. We'll put a link to it in the bio below um, to a local bookstore. But I also want to say that we bring it up a lot on this podcast. And one of the reasons is, is because it is one of the most historically sound and it is the, it, it, gave birth in many ways to this this movement that we're seeing right now because Kelly Brown Douglas goes all the way back to ancient Rome to trace back the thread of white supremacy and it is so important and it also it is written by a Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas is a womanist she's a queer pastor priest and she is an amazing scholar and I do not think that she gets credit enough for her research. I think that we've painted a heteronormative image on top of racial justice conversations. And I think that we need to understand that if we're going to be discussing the intersections, we need to realize who are whose mothers, the mothers that we stand on. And I think that she is a queen in that field. So um, I bring up that book a lot because of that reason. And that, Brendan, of course, also is reading that as well. And I think about, um, as you're talking, I think about sex positivity and how I think one of the things that keeps progressive churches from being able to explore embodiment and being able to explore true liberation and an understanding of justice is because of our fear of the body. Because 
we can take sex and sexuality and we can put it in a comfortable box of a marriage ceremony or, um, oh, that's that nice gay couple and their adopted child or, or something along those lines, which we de-sex our love lives in a way. But when we are able to fully see God as an erotic God, which we see in the Song of Solomons, we see in the writings of so many mystics, is this erotic understanding of the divine and how eroticism ties in to the understanding of who God is, then we can clearly also see a connection between what it means to be have erotic yearnings for one another and erotic yearnings for the divine outside of a gender binary because when the male mystics were talking about yearning for God, they were saying he. They were a man yearning after a man. And there is um, there is queerness in that, yeah, as well. Someone recently told me a story, and they said, "Oh, isn't this beautiful?" And I had to respond, "No." <laughs> uh, they, so I guess, someone went to Pope Francis, and uh, and it was a international cohort of people and said, I'm a gay, I'm a gay man. Do you accept me? And he said, and Pope, Pope Francis said, uh, I separate the person from the adjective. And, uh, and, uh, someone said, isn't that nice that Pope Francis was accepting? And I said, no, that's so patronizing. And I want to speak to that. Uh, who we love and desire is interwoven with who we are as people and living souls, gay or queer or, you know, one's gender is these are not adjectives. This is, you know, who we are. Terms, terms like, terms like it refer to who and how an individual loves and desires and expresses their nature. So who and how an individual loves and desires is one of the most sacred and beautiful parts of being human. And I think there's an obscenity uh, in the way the institutional church for years had um, that in the church, that beauty is called ugly, uh, usually by cotton candy churches with cheap biblical conclusions. And the term love the sinner, we, that we hear the term love the sinner, hate the sin. Um, and it's a patronizing term when applied to the diversity of human expression and it's equally as violent really as open bigotry uh and so i think that this um i think most people have thrown off the church because they can't handle that they have no time for that kind of <laughs> of hypocrisy but also um they i think people have a healthy resentment of how of the kind of the obscenity of calling the beauty of sex and sexuality ugly and uh, you know we have to point out the irony of uh well i think not the irony but the predictable institutional abuse that plays out in an environment that creates that holds a space of shaming around the body and sexuality uh where it creates an environment where sexuality is the secret thing that isn't talked about and that creates a vacuum where all sorts of horrible abuse abuse can play out whereas um 
an environment where we celebrate the marriage of the spirit, which is not, I'm not talking about marriage, legal marriage. I'm talking about two souls uh, coming together, uh, pouring out love into one another and uniting in love. When we talk about sexuality and consent and mutual pleasure, um, and when we talk about the body as the temple of God and therefore the orgasm being the pinnacle of honoring the temple, um, you know, um, that, that's, I think that's what we need. <laughs> and when you call, when you call all of that ugly, there's an obscenity to that kind of immaturity. Uh, and there's a hypocrisy and people have, people have moved on from that and good for them. But do we, and yet we need places where we can celebrate the body as, as sacred. We need places where we can mine our sacred stories um, of the wisdom that they have that point to the sacredness of the body and that allow us to have uh, sacred places and spaces where we can talk about consent and uh, celebrating uh, pleasure and uh, the erotic and desire and in, in, he in healthy and life-giving ways. Um, um, something that I've really enjoyed uh, doing uh, in my last church anyway, anyway was, an, was being an owl instructor. Um, and I just really, it's, it's, a, it's a sex and sexuality and relationship uh, education program rooted in principles of justice and inclusivity and it takes into account uh, the diversity of relational, sexual, uh, and gender uh, expression. And I loved uh, sharing that knowledge with uh, kids and giving kids the knowledge uh, that they will need to love their bodies and uh, make healthy, uh, empowered uh, decisions as they come into their young adulthood and later adulthood. And I enjoyed giving, uh, teaching that class because it also felt like giving my young self what I definitely did not have, <laughs> which was, you know, uh, Sister Claire. So, um, <laughs> very different, but yeah, no, I think we need, uh, we have a lot of, I think a lot of us in the institutional church and society at large, just because society has been shaped by Christendom for such a long time. And I think that in the institutional religion for such a long time acted as a means of crowd control rather than spiritual search and liberation. And in that function, it also uh, created theologies and uh, religious rules that were the birth control of antiquity. You know, make people terrified of their bodies, and you know, you know that's uh, that's how religion worked. And and I and I have to say the irony, and I guess this makes me a little bit of an apologist, is. Um, and yet that is not the message that we find in, in, the, in the Bible and, and in, 
and on the spiritual path. So what you're saying is purity culture is not biblical. No. It's not biblical. And even more so, you're talking about like the birth control of antiquity. It's almost like purity culture, which is about shutting off your sexual urges until you're within the confines of marriage is, I mean, the other thing, I mean, we did not, I don't recall at any point. Turning women's bodies into property. As well. Yes, that too, as well. But I think what the irony of that is that the the teachings of antiquity about celibacy were also not taught alongside purity culture and the idea of erotic yearning intertwined with your spiritual worship, it was completely shut off because desire in and of itself is shut off. So then what more are we then saying about the sexual desires and the yearnings of a queer person when it will never... (laughs) <laughs> it will when it will never be acceptable if we're never going to allow it to be married it, it, it to happen within marriage so it's almost like my yearning towards a person of the opposite sex is is evil and wrong until it's in the confines of marriage but the the yearning if i was yearning towards a woman it would be consistently and always wrong when in reality that yearning is always is is given to us by God. It's a part of intertwining us with who God is and instructing us and teaching us about what it means to yearn after God and to yearn after one another. When we stop seeing God in the person that we're yearning towards, that's when we fall into the, the fall of lust, which of course Rachel and I have talked about in our podcast about lust and um, I've also written about in my blog. Well, I also want to say to not teach people and empower people to name and communicate their yearning, their erotic yearning, that creates a a lonely and dangerous world for us all. And breeds assault. Yes, that is, yes. So, which, you know, which is why uh, much of the institutional church has acted as an assaultive institution. But, um, and yet we need community. We need beloved community. And uh, so, um, ironically, as the pastor of an institutional church, I'm not necessarily uh, in the business of saying, come to church, go back to church, come to an institutional church. I'm interested in saying, asking the question, how do we form beloved community today and now? What does that look like? And as a Christian, I would say that is the, that is the question that I believe that, you know, Christ always asks. Has, and that's the only question Christ has ever asked or put before us. It's almost like Christ is not actually saying there is a um, a list of beliefs that you need to have in order to get into my kingdom. You just need to be a follower of me, which is a follower of love and collective community and a valuer of love and collective community. And Brendan is holding up a book right now for those of you who can't see it. It's called The Wisdom of Christ by Cynthia 
and I cannot read the letters in the entire Uh, last name. Transforming Heart. Brigeau. A New Perspective on Christ and His Message, a beautiful book on uh, the wisdom of the tradition, not the dogma of the tradition, but the wisdom. In short, uh, she does, I think, a really good job. I don't necessarily think it's a new perspective on Christ and His Message, because I actually think mysticism and wisdom is as ancient, extremely old, beyond old wisdom. Uh, she was there at creation. We all know that. Uh, and she is there at, in this moment of creation, creating always within you, within me, within within all that lives and breathes. And um, but Cynthia Bourgeau does a really wonderful job uh, to to sum it up, talking about how we need to move from a religion about Jesus to the religion of Jesus. You know we've. We've had the, we've been dealing with the religion about Jesus, which in the context of the United States has become a religion about a fault around a false idol of white maleness. Um, uh, not always. I think that you know the uh, Black Liberation theology and the Black Church that centers Black Liberation theology is perhaps the saving grace uh, and. I would even go so far as to say, like, one of the few, if only uh, legitimate expressions of Christianity uh, on this continent. And that's important. uh, Yeah. um, But um, uh, for most churches, I would say we've had the religion about Jesus and that has, we all know what that has come to be about. And we need to be moving toward the religion of Jesus, which is um, embodying love and solidarity in our relationships and in the world, in the effort of transforming the world into that vision of beloved community. And that is actually, and in that process, our soul comes alive. In that process, we touch that which we, we feel to be eternal in our hearts because who can describe love? Who can describe the consciousness of love? Uh, you know, why are, you know, why are there things at all instead of nothing? We get to touch that kind of mystery in the process of living for love rather than, you know, living for, you know, our small egos or small, or the accumulation of stuff. And we've just reduced love so much to like, romantic relationships or even just to, to, to family, even though love for family and love for romantic partners is good and beautiful and, and wonderful, but also to be able to expand it outward into mm. the fullness of community because that's actually what we see in Christ. Christ didn't just, well, Christ did die for his lover. Talk to me because about that's agape, the church. Talk to me about agape. Mm. And how do you see the intersections of agape and eros? I think of... So when I was growing up, I was told that there are three types of love. Agape, eros, and phile. And agape is the way God loves us. Eros is love between lovers. And phile is love between friends. And I think that I honor and worship the divinity of love. 
So that means that all three are intertwined with one another in connection. I think that we see in the love of Christ, we see deep friendship and commitment and love to one another. We see the erotic and it's just like Jesus is called Eros so much in mystic writings and caritas and intertwined so deeply with with erotic and eros like it's just it's almost like it is traditional truth and and then of course this agape which is this like overarching like sacrificial love which i actually think the problem with equating that with god even though i do see that within the understanding of the divine is what leads us to a nationalistic understanding of the divine because agape was intertwined with loving Rome. It was intertwined with loving Jupiter or intertwined with loving Zeus. And like this understanding of devotion to something higher and greater than yourself. And I think when we only leave God in the realm of agape and leave out Philae and Eros, in our understanding of God, then we do get this understanding of, I just need to follow a list of rules mm. and that will show God my devotion to God. And then I won't need anything else. It, it, it bails us out from actually having to fully investigate love when we leave Christianity and follow, or just following God, not just Christianity, but following the divine in any way just to, I'm not going to be gay. I'm going to vote Republican and I'm going to not have sex till marriage. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't even know where that comes from, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm thinking, I'm thinking I, I took that into the direction of the conservative church, but I do think that that's even more intertwined. I mean, I guess if I connect it to the progressive church, I can say that that, I feel like that translates as to like, I'm going to have read um, Rahner and I'm going to have gone to my coffee hour where we read our progressive Kelly Brown Douglas book and I'm going to like have checked my boxes and that's going to have allowed me to like have this, I'm going to vote in a way that is in the line with my religion and then I just check my boxes and I fill out my needed forms instead of like, Eros, which is really the choir of action and movement towards something, right. which is much deeper and demands your entire self, I'm not just what you do on Sunday I'm morning. The right thoughts. I'm uh, I'm reading the right ideas, so uh, so I'm the right and good person, rather than how am I changing? Uh, what what do my relationships look like? How am I changing uh, the structures and systems around me in ways that I, in ways that I enable? Is that what you, kind of what you're right. saying? Yeah. And I think that that yeah. back to your earlier question of like, what more we can, what can we do more than just like kind of having a flag? How do we actually change our way of um, relating toward? one another and and being in community with each other and i think this ports also points also to the dogmatism that you and i have definitely talked about in our own that is muddling its way and peeking its way into progressive conversation 
where we are looking for boxes to tick. And like, as we come up with shared language, we know our code words to say to like, be in the group. And instead of actually being motivated with our erotic selves towards actual liberation, we've just kind of found new boxes to tick off. Yeah, and we forget also, and actually, um, while I appreciate uh, the ways technology has made it possible for us to connect and still be together, um, I do feel like, for instance, at the heart of church is the embodiment of community. So then my next question then becomes for... What about for those who are done? Like, I don't want to go to church on Sunday. I don't want to gather with people. And it's not necessarily because of COVID. It's because I don't want, I don't want to have to be in your community or, or, or any community because I've just been hurt too much by community. Go to the beach. Go have brunch. Listen to this podcast. And maybe check out some of the books we recommended. And also give whatever you have, you know, accept uh, for yourself what you believe all people should have. Uh, and um, if you have uh, whatever you have extra, share with other people who have uh, less than you have. Uh, ask the questions, how are you coming into a relationship uh, with, uh, with other, other people? What do, what do your relationships look like? You know, you're not, none of us, not one of us is an island. Uh, we are all who we are because of who we all are together. So how are you, you know, uh, how are you building beloved community beyond your small self, beyond what you would consider your small tribe? Because it's in that outward reaching that together we transform, we welcome a transformed, healed, and whole world. I certainly think that, um, you know, we can transform our institutions and places and spaces when we come together in them with those intentions. When we engage institutions saying, well, we're engaging institution to turn it into community. Uh, but we don't have to. I don't think that in engaging institution is the only way to create community. I think it's a both and. So yes, some people have been, you know, traumatized by the institutional church and have no time for it and have are moving on and uh, and I don't blame a lot of them. So I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, you should, you should just come to the UCC because we're doing it right. Uh, because I think that, you know, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I think that uh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor in the United Church of Christ because I think we're trying. I think that, you know, it's, you know, and um, I see possibility for, uh, fostering beloved community and communities of resistance in and through the institution of the United Church of Christ. Uh, but I think that the body of Christ, the, the process of uh, participating in love and justice and flesh in the world in and through our relationships, that's bigger than institution. This morning, 
while I was, you know, bumbling around on Facebook, shitting around on Facebook, I um, came across a YouTube video that was talking about how the church manipulates emotions using worship and how like using certain songs to build certain emotional feelings and in in connection and like kind of are you talking about praise music yeah yeah yeah. rock and roll rock and roll churches such an old church lady it's why i know i I like i like the really old hymns (laughs) that sound like they have been dusted off since the 1700s or like sacred harp shape note music i love that stuff the 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 new the, a lot of the praise music is just so schmaltzy. schmaltzy. I, I think this is why this is why I became Episcopal because I walked into my first Episcopal church and there was just chanting and I was like, how lovely. Um, I'm glad we're just singing hymns. This is very good. But the interesting thing, but I'm also at the same time not completely convinced that there isn't something good about the way music moves our emotions. I think that there's something really beautiful about that. But one of the interesting points in it that in in connection to that argument that the person in the YouTube channel made is that, and I don't know who it was, so I'm I'm sorry, I'm not going to share share the name, but I believe it's, yeah. Um, But he, he talked about how there was a sense of this through line of you need to come to church you need to come back to church. You need to come back to church. And I recall even growing up where this idea that if somebody has stopped going to church, that means they've fallen away from God. But I think one of the beautiful things that you're also articulating is like, if you're connected to love, you're not ever going to be falling away from God. It's, it's just how are you building on your expression of love in connection to community. And that community doesn't have to exist in the refurbished warehouse that has turned into a church or the old building that is down the street that is a UCC church or in your whatever other denomination or type of non-denominational church that you exist in. It exists in how we express Eros in our lives today and file and agape that's the big picture i certainly want people to take away that's the all that's the deeper answer that i would offer to your question is that love does call us into community mm-hmm. by all means go have brunch and get a pedicure and also uh how is love calling you into community mm-hmm. and how are you being accountable to the ways love calls us into community mm. uh, Whose feet are you washing? Like, yes, get a pedicure, but who are you giving a pedicure to? (laughs) Um, I think that, um, and yet I also want to say, I do value churches that are putting their best foot forward in terms of trying to move in, in this sort of direction. Because I want to say that one of the reasons I am a pastor and a minister in an institutional church is that it does indeed break my heart to see this really deep, profound 
ancient wisdom uh, and, you know, the name of Christ reduced to a false idol of white male supremacy and uh, reduced to uh, a cheap ideology of in-groups and out-groups by, I think, as I mentioned earlier, cotton candy churches with cheap biblical conclusions. Uh, you know, a lot of what we see uh, in fun these fundamentalist Christian cults that have people saying the magic prayer uh, to be a Christian is really just about shutting off the brain, closing the heart, uh, um, and, you know, buying into uh, an uncritical and oppressive uh, community system. Um, well, I think and- it's also intertwined with so much fear. Like, instead of tapping into love, it taps into fear. It taps yes. into fear. Um, and supremacy ideology, which I guess is fear. Yes. Oh, 100%. But I think it taps into, it, it becomes a shutoff mechanism. So if I, I mean, the other thing I was, and this is not, this podcast is so good. We, we go on our little tiny tangents that break away a little bit from our topic. <laughs> But it always ties back in, in the idea of like talking about the rapture and uh, the end of the world theology and fears around purity culture of um, not only will you not really be a Christian if you have sex outside of marriage, but you'll get pregnant and you'll get STDs and you won't get a job and you'll be impoverished for the rest of your life. Like there is this idea of you follow the rules based upon fear, fear that you'll go to hell, fear that you'll not be raptured, that you'll be here for the tribulation instead of operating from love. And I think about the idea that like centered around the cross in Christians, in, in the gospel story is not fear. It's love. And that is what put Christ on the cross. That's what created the incarnation and that's what kept Christ on the cross. And that's what created the resurrection as well, is love, not fear. And so when we settle right. ourselves and into fear, we're not participating in the gospel. Well, in the theology of the slave master, the theology of the colonizer that we see in these magic prayer fundamentalist cotton candy churches, uh, often tells us that it was God's jealous anger that uh, demanded uh, that Jesus die on the cross. The, the theology of social control pumped out by these, uh, you know, oppressive voices uh, places God in the role of executioner, uh, judge and executioner, rather than um, Christ on the cross being uh, a revelation of God as defiant love, uh, resisting empire and triumphing over death uh, and the oppression and death of empire. That's what we need. That's the truth of it all. And frankly, I think that all people know that that's the truth of it all. That's because everybody knows that the former makes no sense. We've spent so many years wondering like, what does that mean? Why did, why would they need Jesus to die? What is this, what does any of this mean? And frankly, like, it doesn't mean much. So it's a, it's a lot of fear and hatred. 
Yes. I'm bashing atonement theology right now. That's a, it's a rotten idea. And I think we need to uh, bury the rotten idea once and for all. And I think when this ties back into LGBTQ rights, it clearly gets to a point where if you're listening to this right now and you think you may be queer in any way and you're afraid of coming out because you're afraid that this God that was willing to kill its son or their son would send you into the fiery pits of hell. Well, you like that I changed God's pronouns to... Well, right, but yeah, no, but the, that God, the God that they're talking about, it's definitely, you know, a trinity of three men, which is also unbiblical and out of line with tradition, but that's another <laughs> But also... And it's also a hierarchical trinity, which is Arianism, which is a heresy. But also, that God, I'm going to invite you to say putosh to that God, which is, which is what my grandmother used to say when she disagreed with something. Putosh. 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 I'm having another cup of coffee on that. Putosh to atonement theology. <laughs> I love that Brendan is now currently getting up and going to the kitchen with the computer. Um, yes, because that is not that is not a god of love. That's not a divinity of resurrection. That's death. That's a death god. That is not a resurrection god, and that is just not in line. That is not in line with the Bible, and I challenge any fundamentalist evangelical to come at me and try to tell me that death as the conclusion of the gospel is biblical, because it is not. Um, and so, yeah, I would encourage you to say putash to that divinity, and whatever that means after that, you know, I invite you to read read your Kelly Brown Douglas and, and explore and explore more. But the next question I do have for Brendan is what books should that listener be reading? And I would invite you to listen to your heart before reading anything. Mm. I would invite you to, uh, uh, read the gospel and the yearning of your heart for, 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 for deeper love. Uh, for um, for pleasure, for the glories of this life, uh, for the gifts of the senses, revel in those. I would, you know, discover God in dance. Discover God in acts of creativity. Discover God in the expansion of wisdom, because these are all the names of God that have been glossed over and silenced by. Uh, the patriarchy within the church that we have come to see as the church, but who are actually imposters in the tradition. Uh, that's not to say all men are, are imposters. That institution within the church is an is an, well is an imposing force and presence. It and is the um, telling when you say something is anti-patriarchal and people th see it as anti-man. Because man is not synonymous with patriarchy. It's patriarchy yeah. that thinks patriarchy is synonymous with men. Beautiful, beautiful reminder. Uh, when I was when I was a wee queer, uh, part of so something I also want to say is I left. I dipped on the church and didn't come back for a very, very, very long time. It wasn't until 
after discovering liberation theology, rolling through actually, uh, you know, interfaith circles uh, that I sort of discovered a language that uh, articulated what I always felt but didn't know was there. Uh, and I, um, you know, part of, part of my healing from the institutional, uh, kind of the institutional theology that we're talking about, um, or the patriarchal theology that we're talking about, um, was discovering uh, meditation. I lived in, uh, a, I remember discovering Thich Nhat Hanh at about the age of 13. And I read the Dhammapada, which said, if you speak or act with a clear mind, uh, joy follows. If you speak or act with a clouded mind, suffering follows. So then, so just like the simplicity of uh, focusing on awareness, cultivating awareness of awareness through meditation and sort of the tools that I discovered in Buddhism. I lived in a Buddhist temple for... 10 years, or practiced with a Buddhist temple for 10 years, but also with Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, and particularly the Quantum School of Zen. And that's where I uh, learned, um, studied and practiced meditation. And, um, you know, I think that in Western, in, in the Christian traditions, we intellectualize the divine. Uh, there are spiritual practice, practices that invite us to taste and experience what we call the divine. For instance, you know, one of the names for God is I am that I am. So God is being itself. What brings you, what, what brings you into deeper touch with your, with your being, with your sense of pure being? Do you, do you come into relationship or do you ground yourself in pure being by sitting still and breathing deeply for half an hour a day? Do you come into deeper touch with your own sense of pure being uh, by, you know, going out and uh, making sandwiches for people who don't have food? Uh, what do you... That, that I think, so like, rather than going out and reading books, my, I would like to send people away with a question, what are you and why are you here? You know, how do you, and how do you come into deeper, deeper relationship with uh, the amazing gift of life that is a mystery that we have for a moment and then, and then we'll be gone. And what is the, you know, how do you come into touch with your, your deeper being, your, you know, your deeper purpose? And, and there is wisdom uh, in, the, uh, in the Christian tradition and also wisdom in many of the world's religions and philosophies that can inform that quest, that can inform, that, inform and inspire that inquiry. But if if the texts or the teaching doesn't point to the question into a deeper and greater opening, uh, find a different text and teaching. And I think as you're talking, I'm thinking about, um, I was warned so much to avoid buffet 
religion where I'm picking and choosing um, what I want to believe and what I don't want to believe and picking and choosing from here and there and here and there. And I used to critique things. I remember reading Eat, Pray, Love and feeling like that's what she was doing. And I felt like she said a lot of great things, but I felt like she was picking and choosing. And what I I came to the... Go to Italy and find food for a year too, but I mean, <laughs> that's what I, say about I don't food. have I don't have a million dollars, and I am planning on going to Italy and eating food. <laughs> you don't need that much to go to Italy and do that, but um, genuinely, like, feel that at the same time, what I've what I've come to learn in my spiritual journey is that we all have favorite. Like, I think of food if we're going to follow the metaphor of food and buffets. Like I have my favorite foods. I have the foods that are my comfort and my space that I go to that are that are my go-to meals that I feel like I'm at home with, that I enjoy and I love. But but golly gee whiz, if I had to eat, only eat that for the rest of my life, I would go crazy and I would miss out on all the other flavors that are available to us in the world that have also enhanced my own cooking and have made my cooking all the more rich and beautiful. And I think the same goes with religion. I think that I have the traditions that I, I have the, the, the saints and Mary and Jesus who are important to me and sacred and Christmas and Easter and the holidays and the traditions and Lent and Ash Wednesday and all these traditions that are so valuable to me. But if I were to have only ever stuck with those traditions and not expanded out, the flavors of my own spirituality would be bland. There's this wide, vast cosmology of divinity that is capable of including other understandings of divinity within um, its universe. And I think it's only the politics of empire. What what, what we have to come to terms with is the institutional church is the vestigial structure of empire and the Roman Empire. And so we have the politics of empire, which says like, no, this God is the right guide, yours is not. So I've talked to people who are Hindu, uh, who also I think um, have something closer to a more is more attitude. When I've spoken with Hindus and say, for Christians, Christ is the embodiment of God. They'll say, beautiful, of course, yes. How wonderful. Or if I talk to uh, practitioners of Ifa, which is an African religion, and I'll say, we, you know, Christianity believes Christ is the embodiment of God. They will say, oh, yeah, well, we understand, we would understand Christ as an Orisha, you know, sort of a a human who uh, elevated to what we might call a divine state. and um, where you know, sort of, God is made real. That they, you know, the spirit is is made real to us. So my question, in in lifting up these traditions that have a more is more understanding, which I think that is the more godly way, the more wise and loving way of doing religion. When we encounter great love and great beauty and great wisdom and other traditions, why can we not say, oh, and I see Christ in that? I don't know why, Brendan. 
you know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or what that means is, and his truth is love. So would that not mean that wherever we see love being made tangible and real, where we have, wherever we see truth and love, life and light being made enfleshed in relationship and in, in, in beauty uh, and expressed, why can't we see look at why why can't we say look at christ over there we would be so less lonely for christ if we were able to perceive perceive them in that way this ties back as well to the what we've been discussing in terms of progressive churches ticking off boxes instead of moving into love and light is when we have those when we just say okay we have check we do same-sex marriage weddings check we have our flag hanging up check we have we we have only affirming elder board members and a pastor who's affirming check 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 but we don't have an openness to the flourishing of love consistently within everything we are and also in the way it includes includes other cultures and other understandings then we're not really being progressive we're being western supremacists who accept our lgbtq siblings within the western supremacy of our ideologies and that's that's missing out on the point of what why we gather in the first place Right. I mean, it's uh, when we touch upon these things, we see how deeply wounded uh, <laughs> we are and how deeply wounded our institutions are. But like um, the fact of the matter is like, I don't think we heal unless we name those and look at and touch those wounds and, and move, you know, because um, it's in the touching of wounds after all that we realize the possibility and see the face of resurrection in our midst. Uh, and it's, uh, it's in the touching of the wounds that we move toward healing. And so then I'm thinking about how so many people get nervous that, well, if we accept LGBTQ folk, then it's going to be a slippery slope. And I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, but that's often said about many different things, that if we start doing this, then it's a slippery slope. And we suddenly start going down the, the path. And I can imagine some people who are just dipping their toes into moving outside of a specific bubble are hearing our conversation where we're saying it's not enough to marry same-sex couples. It's not enough to hang a rainbow flag. We need to do more. We need to embrace other cultures and other traditions and other understandings. And we need to fully expand love. They're saying that is the slippery slope. That's the slippery slope. And I yeah. have a thought about a response to that. But before I say that, I'm curious to know what you would respond with. Well, first of all, Jesus said, not all who go crying out, Lord, Lord, will be saved. And yet a lot of these atonement theology churches who think it's a slippery slope to practice love and solidarity. Uh, <laughs> oh, but only, not all those who call out, Lord, Lord, will be saved, but only those who do the will of 
my father, the will of God, the will of the creator, the will of the, the source, uh, mm -hmm. which is, according to Jesus, love. Uh, so love and solidarity with the, the people and groups Jesus referred to as the least among us is uh, how we come into relationship with the God and in, with God. And in that process of coming into healed whole relationship, that's how we're saved, saved from empire, saved from death, saved from a diminished humanity and move towards a new humanity. Uh, and a new heaven and a new earth, even. Um, new consciousness. And so um, it's interesting to me that uh, a lot of these churches that think it's a slippery slope to practice love and solidarity, really they think it's a, like they, they're still afraid of the person they say is saving them. Mm. Mm. So what I want to say afraid of the person they say is saving them. That yeah, was a good sentence. So, so to all of them, I say, who do you think is coming to, to save you? Hmm. And what do you, what do you think you're being saved from? Who will save them from themselves? I don't know. And it's certainly not queer people that need to be saved by them or their decaying institutions. They need to be saved by people who know how to love, some of whom are queer. <laughs> <laughs> what I also think about the slippery slope is that we never say there's a slippery slope. Well, if you get that job in finance, it's a slippery slope to being greedy. If you, if you get that high-paying job, it's just a slippery slope towards greed. If you, if you start thinking about buying one nicer car, it's just going to be a slippery slope until you want nicer cars. It's going to be a slip. Yeah. If you, if you stop, if you stop volunteering or donating or, or supporting loving environments or being yourself loving, actively loving, if you stop doing that and start instead watching Netflix all day on Saturdays, which is still something that I would gladly do. So it's not, bashing the every once in a while but if you start to numb yourself from the world around you it's just a slippery slope we don't say that we instead say it's a slippery slope to love mm -hmm. and i'm excited to get to some real conversations because what this all does is like none of us are having real conversations which is why we're just like vomiting memes at each other on social media <laughs> We need to get to we, we need to get to the reality and have some real conversations. Right. Yes. And some real conversations about what it means to truly be the church in in a fullness expanse of what that means. And I think because of the, what you brought up with intersectionality, what it means is like how do we walk alongside the people who have been fighting climate change for hundreds of years? Mm. How do we face the, the ecocide that has been perpetuated on Turtle Island for hundreds of years? How do we, uh, how do we dismantle the ways the false idol of whiteness has tortured the human spirit and shredded uh, our social relations 
and the social contract in this society? How do we see how it has prevented there from ever being anything that could be called true democracy? I mean, talking about how Christianity and American exceptionalism have been married to each other in this country for, for such a long time and how that ties into whiteness as well. I mean, it really is all connected. Once you chip away at how the, the white male has, how Jesus has been made into a false idol of white maleness in this country, once you really chip away at that, and also straight male, or like asexual, somehow, like, I mean, we could talk a long time about like the sexuality of the incarnation. I mean, like that's, it's invisible. Um, and, but the, um, once you chip away at that, you realize how many false conversations we've been having and how much space uh, one conversation and one voice has been taking up. And um, when we replace that with uh, a curiosity about what the voice of love and justice is saying, it blows open uh, a lot of doors for um, many more important conversations to be had. So the slippery slope is good, but it's not a slippery slope, right? I guess that's just the wrong metaphor. It's an expanding rainbow of love or an expanding... The slope is the false idol that needs to be smashed. Let the slope become, uh, let the slope become a river of life. <laughs> Pour so much, make the slope so slippery that it goes away and becomes a river. <laughs> mm. Yeah, there's no such thing as a slippery slope. Because if we're no expanding thing. towards love, then we're just moving towards God. Yes. I think that that's beautiful. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Well, I think that's all we have for you today. Thank you for joining us. As always, subscribe, like, and share. We have our Patreon link below. So if you like what you're hearing and you want to support Rachel and I bringing other cool guests on like Brendan, being able to have things like programs to record and being able to get this to you every week, join our Patreon, support us, and we would love to be able to share some of those extra goodies that we have for you in our Patreon as well with you. You can follow us on Instagram at Sex Positive Christian Feminists. You can find Rachel, my co-host, at rachel.alba.coaching, and me, Lori, at at Lori Kimmerly. And Brendan, will you give us your Instagram handle? My Instagram handle, which I am I'm building up my Instagram more and more these days, is um, at sister S, sister Brennan J Curran. So at S R B R E N D A N J C U R R A N. Wonderful. And where can we listen to your sermons and get your get information about you? So I'm the pastor of the Forest Grove United Church of Christ in Forest Grove, Oregon. We are an open and affirming uh, progressive uh, Christian church in the United Church of Christ. 
Uh, our website is fgucc.org. So F is in forest, G is in growth, UCC is in United Church of Christ.org. And on the website, you should be able to find links to our Facebook pages. And currently, our, also, you can join us for Zoom worship live on Sunday mornings. Uh, Beautiful. And we have a YouTube channel as well. And if you're, uh, so if you oh. wanted to just go to the YouTube, if you wanted to just go to the YouTube channel, Forest Grove United Church of Christ, Forest Grove, Oregon, you should be able to find messages there. Beautiful. And if you're interested in learning more about feminist theology and erotic spirituality, and are interested in learning more about liberation theology and feminist theology specifically through the Feminist School of Theology launching in the next week you can go to www.lorikimmerly.com. And for Christian sex coaching, visit Rachel at www.sexwithspirit.com. We are the Sex Positive Christian Feminists, and we will see you next week for another conversation about sexuality, spirituality, and feminism. Bye.